0: Since this is, to all intents and purposes, the beginning of Season 5 of Countermelody, I'm going to introduce you to the brand new intro that I have produced, once again with the great Claudia Muzio providing the sung introduction. In this case, Son pochi fiori from Pietro Mascagni's L'Amico Fritz. Hello, my dear listeners, you've once again found your way to counter melody, and I, Daniel Gundlach, as your host, am here to present to you the greatest singers who will illuminate our path with their song, guiding us to a brighter day. This week's episode. Hello there, everyone. It's Daniel, but Daniel sort of in absentia for the month of January. I really need to catch my breath. I have a number of freelance projects that have been put on the back burner and need to be addressed this month. I also have my German citizenship that I'm dealing with, and which all comes to a head when I take my citizenship test toward the end of January. So I have asked a number of my superfans, I don't think they mind being called superfans, people who have supported the podcast in so many different ways, and who have come to me from so many different directions to do introductions to some of their favorite episodes, from the first three seasons of the podcast, ones that I'm thrilled to present to you again in this slightly new garb. So, this week I am featuring my friend Brian Castle's Onion, who will tell you how we came to know each other and describe the episode that he has chosen, and that really is one of my very favorites. So, without any further ado, here is Brian.
1: Hello, this is Brian Castles-Onion, and I'm a conductor of opera in Sydney, Australia, the other side of the world for most listeners to this podcast. And Daniel Gundlach invited me to talk about my favorite episode of the series and how I became introduced to countermelody Melody. In June 2020, I think it was, I received an email from a good friend of mine, Ira Siff, and he said he'd just done an interview and asked me to listen and hopefully enjoy it. Ira was being interviewed by Daniel and talking about La Granchena Opera, Company D New York, and his experiences of attending opera since the early 1960s at the Met and wherever, and the great artists he had heard. Of course, most people listening to the podcast know about great voices, know about great singing, but it's great that Daniel or makes us revisit these great artists of the past and enjoy them again. Because sometimes a distant memory proves faulty and you think, oh yeah, that singer was quite good, but then you hear them and they're absolutely fantastic. I wanted to say a couple of things about some of the episodes that I really loved: Julia Varadi, Edda Moza I love Leslie Agams, um, Russell Oberlin, who I adored as as a friend, George Shirley. Of course, we can't even go anywhere without talking about Renata Scotto, Anitta Stacquetti, Sylvia Shash, who is a good friend of mine. I did her, painted her toenails once in Tokyo, believe it or not. Um, Arlene Farrell is with Janet Baker was an absolute revelation again, because I I grew up listening to her recordings, and I thought, yeah, she's boring. But listen to her again. It's fantastic. It, Revelation. And John Raid, those wonderful American singers from the City Opera. And look, I could go on and on. In fact, I have already. I met iris if many years after i purchased the video of la op company in germany and um, i attended a performance of la granchena at the bloomsbury theater in london in 1994 which was fantastic yeah hilarious and wonderful at the same time and then in 1999 i think i was in new york and ira invited me to attend a rehearsal La Grancena and uh, and playing piano for the rehearsal it was it was hilarious. But then end of 1999, I was appointed artistic director of an opera company in New Zealand. And on that very day, I got the invitation. I read an article that Ira was directing his first opera, and so I faxed him. That's how long ago it was, and said, "Look, I've just got this new position. Would you like to come and direct a real opera for us? Uh, the company had before my my tenure, had planned a production of Così Fan which I'm not crazy about Mozart, but We kept that production going, and Ira directed it, and Richard Bonning conducted, and the following year, I brought Ira back to direct La Traviata with me on the podium, and a very strange Russian soprano who didn't want to do anything, she wanted to do the performance that she had done as a student back in Russia, but Ira and I bulldozed the soprano into doing something quite decent. In fact, I've never experienced a director who actually sings at pitch the phrases in a production rehearsal to the soprano. Well, that was Ira. The great thing about Daniel and counter melody is that he reminds us of the great singers it's important and unique that uh, we rehear these voices because as i said we learn from the past and it's exciting to hear the great stuff and also look iris episode was wonderful because he spoke about his experiences attending performances at the met being at the airport and recognizing maria Callas by her her ankles which was hilarious i love ira and, and also I know that episode was particularly a favourite of Daniel Because of the queer element Ira was part of that 1970s queer theatre in New York And Ira and I both studied with the same teacher in Venice Randy Michelson, Randolph Michelson Who taught many other singers um, I, I didn't study singing with him Ira did Before I even knew Ira uh, Randy would talk about how wonderful Ira was As a very high tenor And you can hear on those recordings on episode. Episode 41 what a wonderful singer in that repertoire ira was before he became madame vira glupke which is fantastic i've said far 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 too much i send my love to daniel and all the listeners and keep on please listening to these episodes and donate we love you all thank you very much bye-bye
0: thank you brian As an addendum to his comment about donating to support the podcast, I'd just like to mention that last week's episode on my beloved teacher John Wustman was so well received by so many listeners, including a large number of my fellow Wustmanites, and to them I am especially grateful. And among those, I'd especially like to thank my colleague Yelena, who not only enjoyed that episode, but has also become a supporter of the podcast on Patreon. So if you want to join Yelena in her generous support, please go to patreon.com slash countermelody. You can also make a yearly or a monthly donation. And right now, there are, goodness gracious, 92 bonus episodes that I have posted. So you may partake of all of those if you donate to support the podcast on Patreon. And now, without any further ado, here's Ira and Vera. Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. I am your host, Daniel Guntlach, and I am thrilled to share with you the opera and classical singers about whom I am most passionate. I hope that when you hear these voices, you might echo me in saying, God, I love her, or God, I love him. Now, without any further ado, I bring you This week's episode.
2: And so now, ladies and gentlemen, won't you please welcome to the stage my very dear friend and the founder of La Grande Chena, Madame Vera Gablube (laughs) Borsch.
3: it just come out of me concerning certain things and then I think thank God that wasn't recorded. Well, as Vera I could say anything I wanted about the opera scene that I could not say as myself. Playing another character just gives you this freedom to be who you really
2: are. <laughs> you see, in art, each generation passes a path of itself on to the next generation. For instance, The weight lost by Maria Callas was then gained by Montserrat (laughs) Caballé. I was traveling all over the world singing with conductors. Notice, I do not say maestri. Manuel warned me about conductors. Mira, he would say. The vocal life of soprano has four stages. Bel canto. Can belto. Can't gelato.
0: Can't canto. Hi everyone and welcome to today's special episode of Counter Melody. I'm so thrilled to present to you today an interview that I did in January with Ira Sif. Along with being the alter ego of Virga Borsch, the traumatic soprano who headed La Granchena Opera Company, Ira is also a voice teacher, vocal coach, director, lecturer, and presenter. I first met Ira when I auditioned for him and the then music director of La Granchena, Ross Barentine, to become one of the coterie of divas in the La Granchena stable, if you will. I already had a drag persona. Her name was Daniela Della Scarpone. I had first started doing performances under that name while I was in graduate school. Ira and Ross engaged me to go on tour with the company in their first international season. I performed with them at the Bloomsbury Theatre in London, at the Theater des Festens here in Berlin and in Washington, D.C. at the Kennedy Center. My final performances with the company were in October 1990 at Symphony Space in New York, almost exactly 30 years ago. Oh my God. <laughs> my roles... Included Adriana Lecouvreur, Santuzza, and Amneris. I was also responsible for covering Ira. That is, Daniela was responsible for covering Vera in scenes that the company did from Tosca and Fanciulla del West. I referred to this at one point in the interview, but Ira was an enormously consistent performer. And I was never called to step in for him, in spite of the fact that we were doing an extremely grueling performance schedule. were my first professional engagements as a singer. I had a blast with these guys. We really had a wonderful, wonderful time. It was a great company. I made friends there that have remained Friends, to this day, I had experiences that I will never forget. This is a rather freewheeling conversation. We veer from topic to topic. Sometimes we get a little bit off course, but the main gist of the conversation is to discuss Ira's early opera-going experiences. We cover some of Ira's favorite divas, including Maria Callas, Renata Scotto, Leonie Riesenech, from there, we move on to some of Ira's earliest performing experiences. The birth of the Grand Shana Opera Company and how his impersonation of Vera led to him becoming the weekly commentator on the Metropolitan Opera radio broadcasts. This is an incredibly appropriate episode to present to you on the last Sunday of gay pride month we are just two opera queens having a wonderful rollicking good time carrying on as only two opera queens can I really think you're gonna enjoy this god knows I've had fun putting this together this week so thank you to Ira and thank you to all of you out there for tuning into this episode here we go
3: asking me about the radio, and I don't say negative things. Of course I can't, but I also think people are going to have their own feelings and opinions about what they like and don't like anyway. I give lectures to two private groups of people who are mostly retired. I love them dearly, and I've exposed them to Olivero, Zayani, Genscher, people they never heard of, all these people, and they love it, and then they will always say to me, why don't you play a positive and a negative example and i say i don't want to waste your time with what i consider to be a negative example also that you may love and then afterwards we have this whole discussion which boils down to taste i like yes. this, and you like that so what's the yes point? i find that a lot of the singers that
0: i love you could apply a certain criteria to them i mean you could say olivero for that matter and say there's some questionable stuff going on there vocally but you know what i don't care i love her. Yeah. I love what she's doing. I love her artistry. And so I'm willing to cut someone like that a little bit more
3: slack because she was such an individual. We always do. With people that we love, we make allowances. It's so interesting when I read reviews that my friends write, and you just know, well, they just will overlook this and overlook that. I've never been quite like that in terms of overlook. I won't overlook, but as you said, I don't care. Whatever Renata did... I don't care. It just boils down to I wouldn't trade anything I ever sat through with her and I saw her probably in more roles than anybody. Although there was a point at which I went to La Puma and saw Olive Middleton in more roles than anybody. Oh, God! And that was bliss.
0: Hi, it's me just stepping in for a moment. To remind you that Olive Middleton was an elderly and eccentric diva who sang with the La Puma Opera Company. I featured her on my April Fool's episode, Alternate Universe Bel Canto. If you want to hear more of her, please check that out. There you will encounter the vocal stylings of Olive and a large number of her fellow divas.
3: was Renata. And you take the good with the questionable, and she probably would be the first. In her case, one could get the good and the questionable really within phrases of each other. Absolutely. What I loved, I think, most about her, aside from everything, was (laughs) that she was so brilliant that she could turn a flaw into an asset. And that was what I most, most admired and sort of wanted to be. Because I knew I didn't have I didn't have a voice like yours. I didn't have that kind of voice. But I, I wanted to turn... If I couldn't hit a high note forte, I would hit a pianissimo. You know, you find some way oh my God. to do Your something. pianissimo was legendary. But in the recital, when I started doing solo recitals, in mm-hmm. the last seven years was only solo recitals, I just could sing anything I wanted in any key I wanted. And I could do what I wanted and say what I wanted. And to me, that, and when Renata came to one of those and we just communed afterwards about Le Chemin de l'Amour and, you know, other things that I had sung, the most amazing Renata thing, this is really about me, so I apologize, but, you know, when you worship somebody, from, from the time I saw her debut when I was, I think, was I 18? The Butterfly. The Butterfly, yeah, 65. So I was just 19 at the Old Med.
0: Hi, it's me just jumping in here. Listen, I have to tell you something about this story that Ira is about to tell. It's important for you to know that Vera Glupe-Borsk had a trademark look, and that was her flaming red hair. Never a wig, of course. Vera swore up and down that she never,
3: ever, ever wore a wig. So I went to a very late Renata performance. It was Clytemnestra. Oh, you saw that in the one in Baltimore? Baltimore. I went to one in Baltimore with Marilyn Chow. Marilyn Chow? Yeah. And we drove down, and I had most wonderful time. After the show, I thought, well, I came all the way to Baltimore. She's not going to really remember me, even though she'd been to the show and she also collected the videos. After she saw the show live, she said, I want every video. So I sent her the Tosca, the Funchula. I sent her all the stuff of what we had done in many VHS tapes first, then she got DVDs later. In the Electra, she wore a big red French twist. And I went backstage, and her son, Filippo, was there, and I said, I want to see your mother. He said, of course she wants to see you. And I said, do you think she remembers me? And he said... Yeah, when anyone comes into the house, they have to watch the Tosca. So, I think she remembers you. So, I went backstage, and there's this long hall in the back of the theater, and the dressing room door opens. Renata has the red wig on, and she said, Today, I did you. <laughs> and like, oh, my God! It's the oh most God. incredible experience you could ever Oh. have as sort of someone who'd worship somebody for their whole life. And then oh this weird twist of... That makes me want to cry. It's so... That's so touching. Well, you know, you don't know what to do in situations like that. I'm thinking, will she recognize me or remember me? And then she comes out and does that. And my friend Paul Gregory was there. It was a strange, wonderful thing on Monday. SAGE, which is a senior gay organization, did Remembering La Grande Chena. And they had this big program of two hours... Um, where Keith and I went and reminisced and they played all these videos for this room full of lost sensibility. It was all these older gay men getting every joke on these videos, some of which, you know, it was hard to catch Sylvia's words or my patter, or dying over every bit of stuff that we did. Let's just say who Keith is for the listeners. Keith yeah, the other founding member of the company. Of course, his old diva was legendary. He did many, many roles—soprano and baritone. Yeah, we played his Scarfy, but we played his Home Sweet
2: Home, and it was just... oh god. Any of you who are fans of the golden age, or or have collections of old, old <laughs> seventy-eight RPM recordings, will certainly remember this remarkable soprano. You were a soprano, weren't you, dear? Yes, I was a soprano. <laughs> The most remarkable thing about her is that she is now one hundred and
1: five
2: years young. Oh,
1: oh yes. Okay. One hundred five years old. Sono vecchia, sono brutta, sono sbiancata, ma sono ancora Gabriella Tuna Tidicassotto.
2: <laughs> or I am old, I am ugly, I am decrepit, but I am still Gabriella Tuna Cat.
1: Well, you know, it it was so sweet of you to come up and
2: take a bow, and it's a pity you can't sing something for us tonight.
0: Most beautiful singing, exquisite singing, and he sounded like a damn
3: old record, right? Oh, he did I mean, talk, it was amazing. Just, he talked about it on could, Monday that he could. You just did say, this? Yeah, we did it two oh, days ago.
0: Oh my god, if I had known, I yeah. would have come. Yeah, oh my it god. was
3: really, and they said at the sort of the, the last minute, oh, you can have guests. And so my friend Paul Gregory came and he told them about the Renata wig thing because he was there with me in Baltimore. Keith Remnant, I had forgotten stuff because he's you know, you're focused on what you did and blah, blah, blah. And Keith was focused on his characters, all of them. And I'd forgotten that I would say to him, could you do a little more Tetrazzini on that line? Could you do a little more on or Patti with that perfect trill? Because Keith had a perfect trill. Oh, yes. I remember that trill. Yes, so indeed. Yeah. It was remarkable. And he would simulate... So he's he was genius, stylish. Genius. And in my
0: days with Grand Chiena, there were two... I think on the shows that we were doing, there were two primary old diva numbers. The one was the duet. The Bowen. The Bowen (laughs) duet with Chick Walker as Alfredo Sordapaggi, if I recall. Yes. And then, on the second year that I was touring with you guys, they did the Hensel duet. And... She that's was portraying this um, Emily
3: Postmortem. That's what Dame her name Emily was, Post-mortem. Dame Emily Postmortem. Yes, yes this British contralto, oh, sort yeah. of la
2: Clara Bach yeah, or something, yeah. oh, right? And I
0: think she was wearing like a you know a so scouting of- uniform. Or yes, something. yes, very British right?
2: lady. Yes, yes,
3: practical clothes. Oh
0: my God. By the way, if you are wondering about that inappropriate laughter in the middle of that piece, it's because two guardian angels came out sprinkling fairy dust on the two old divas. If you look at the video, you'll see one of those little angels is yours truly, or rather, my diva persona, Daniela Della Scarpone. And now we're going to backtrack chronologically to Ira telling us about the very first operas that he saw at the Met. I love this part.
3: Do you want to start with your opera going, perhaps? Uh, sh- yeah, because, you know, it leads into... Of course it does, yes. It, it's funny, yeah. I mean, I think my opera going leads into Grand and then post-Grand there's all the stuff I wish I had more time for with old singers and just listening. My first opera was a not-memorable Bohème at the Met. The second opera was Sutherland's debut Lucia, the final performance of her debut season. So with Sutherland and, and Tucker. <laughs> It was my second opera, but really my first opera, because the first one sort of went whizzed by me, unnoticed. And I had this friend in high school, and he became a doctor, and I became a diva for a while. And Did you uh, grow up in Manhattan? In Brooklyn. I was in high school, and this guy was kind of a nerd outcast. I really liked him, and he wasn't appreciated. And I thought he was funny and interesting, and his parents were opera people. And I went to his house in Mill Basin, Brooklyn. And in the finished basement, we prepared for the Lucia with the new Sutherland recording that had just come out. Her first big recording of an opera. And we followed a libretto. And then we went to this Lucia. I had gone to Broadway shows a lot. And when I was younger, my parents went to that. I'd never heard an audience carry on like this. And I also just couldn't believe what was coming out of her. I was in the standing room of the family circle, the old men. She was five miles away. And it was so vivid the noises that emanated from her while she ran around the stage during the mad scene was just, it blew my mind. And also there was something very plangent, which I came to like perhaps less later and then appreciate more again now in Tucker singing, that just clarion noise again reaching the family circle standing room. So I was hooked. I left Robert in the dust and I started going to the Met standing several times a week, anything, because it was a dollar and a quarter for a standing room upstairs which i could just barely afford so i followed joan because she was my first diva and for my brother's wedding i was best man and as a gift he gave me the art of the prima donna mm-hmm. this was 16 arias to lp set i obsessed about it. my mother would holler down to the basement is that the one that starts with like the soldier tired yeah. or something like that That's okay. one. yeah yeah I'm exactly one. yeah yeah and it was remarkable the span of what she did everything from you know that and Let the Bright Seraphim, to Puritani, mm. to Semiramide, to Othello, the Willow Song. is gorgeous. Oh, I forgot that was on there. Yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. And so I started to sing with it, not knowing what I was doing. My father got me this Norelco plastic tape recorder with a terrible microphone. I used to sneak it into the old Met. I taped the second callas Tosca. I Zinka's up uh, but I had to just do little Brani Shelty because yes. the batteries wouldn't last.
4: Oh my God.
3: And I would do it from the family circle because that was all I could afford standing. It was a reel-to-reel um, one and seven eighths IPS little <sighs> reels. Actually, if I had a good mic, it would have been fine because when I recorded things from the radio on this thing, sound was fine. The mic was crap, so the recordings are crap, but the wonderful to have and to have done it i just went when i went to jones you know sonambula and i went to uh was that with gedda with gedda yes right and then alexander later john alexander mm-hmm. uh then there was a new lucia for joan and but it was a lot of joan leontine was my first tosca with corelli and mcneil
0: oh um, that one yes
3: yeah, now it's on sony uh birgit you know zalome uh Leone immediately was riveted by oh, Leone yes. Zeglinda, Crespin Glinda. also. I just went. I went to things. I went to a lot of Don Carlos. It was the 4 version. I had no idea what they were singing, but something about the music and all those characters really interested me. And some of the performances were dreck, the old, met, disorganized... We look at the golden age, but not really performances. In those Don Carlos. So who were some of the singers that you saw that made an impression? Kabaivanska, yes. who had a very short Met career. Yes. And as she was one of my first Mimi's. Loved her. So I went to the Don Carlos with her. I saw Grace's debut, Bumbrey. Giaurov's also as Philip. I went to a lot of Don Carlos. I'm not sure why Did Martina. you see Riesenek
0: do Elisabetta or someone
3: else? No, I heard the broadcast, though. Oh, okay, friend of mine, Michael Barclay, who's no longer with us, he said that he had uh, Leone and Elu over for dinner in San Francisco, where he lived. Apparently, Leone was a big fan of Collas's Vanita. and then Michael had the broadcast with Leone, and he played it for her, and she stood up afterwards, and she said, "Elu call me a cab because <laughs> it was rough around the edges." If you are a reasonac person, you don't care. I, don't, I didn't care. I loved her Ballo. I loved the Elisabetta. And I she was care. always dicier to my ear in Italian, the Italian yeah. rap. Yes, although I'll say she was my first Desdemona. And when there's she, oh I've heard a clip. Because yes. Because it's a well, it's stunning. Was A broadcast on it was my eighteenth birthday. I didn't Was it McCracken or something? I'm McCracken. Like, yes. Yeah. Yes. And I saw the Saturday I saw one before that. That was an interesting evening. There were death threats to Leone from Milanov and Dubaldi fans for what? singing Desdemona. Death threats. Well, that's what the passion was like in those days. It was in the newspapers, and it was, I think, fans of Milanov and Tobaldi. They'd be threatening to kill her. It was male voices. They said that in the article in Code. So I went to the Desdemona in the house. It was the first time I saw what I perceived as operatic acting. She came down the steps looking at McCracken, whose back was toward us. And she had this fixed gaze that carried all the way to the family circle standing room. At
0: her first entrance at the end of Act One.
3: It was hypnotic. And I thought, I, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm, I'm feeling something. You know, it's the sort of thing that turns you gay.
0: turning me gay all over again. It was just astonishing,
3: astonishing moment as she came down and started me as a parable That sound, it was so weird but beautiful but bizarre and it went on like that after he threw her down at the end of the Act 3 duet the place exploded. At the end of the performance she made a curtain speech because of the death threats and she said if you don't like me don't come to see me but please don't threaten to kill me. And the place went crazy. For the broadcast, that one that you can hear, Bing banished the standees from the house because he said they were responsible for Leonie's death threats. So anyone who had a budget bought a seat. So there was still some carrying on on the broadcast, but I didn't have the budget. So I stayed home and listened to the broadcast. And I kept going. The highlight, of course, was the Coloscopy Toscas, the two. Of them, I slept in the street for three days, two nights, and it was an amazing thing. I had this friend from summer camp, Lex Selden. You can (laughs) see Lex in the documentaries about Collis. He's this little guy wrapped in a blanket. We'd never seen Maria, but he talked about how great she was. Yeah, he's also in that film, Maria by Collis. And so I was going to Cooper Union at the time, but still living with my parents in Brooklyn. So I went home on a Friday from school, and I get a phone call from Lex. I'm at the mat. Come. I got a a number for you for the college line. And I said, the college line, the tickets are going on sale Sunday. He said, it's filling up, hurry. So I got on the subway, and went back to Manhattan. He had number 44. It was a green kind of tag. I got on the line. I was so lucky. He was so amazing. He was on the other line because his parents lived in Manhattan. He lived on Central Park West, and they had some money, so he was already going to the Sunday, the first performance with Corelli. He didn't need a ticket for that one. He needed one for the Tucker performance itself, so he was on the other line. So he got me this place. It was in education. I was freezing. We stood on the line... But this was in the, March.
0: In March. March.
3: It and the was, performances were... March 19 and 25. It was cold and it was this it was sidewalk. You know, when they yeah. built the new mat, they put us in a tunnel underneath, at least it was indoors. But the standees were out in the cold in front of the house... And people brought sleeping bags and blankets who knew they were going to do this. I was just like, you know, kid in a pea coat. It was a long haul. Friday I stood, Friday night. Finally, they began to let us go for a little while to eat something or warm up or shower or whatever people wanted yeah. to do. And there were all these opera queens on the line. I saw one guy. I've never seen anybody before or since. Put on a full face of cold cream and crawl into a sleeping bag, and people were kissing each other, which was not anything I would seen two guys do you in mean, my men life. Men kiss yeah. each other online to get nineteen sixty-five.
0: Imagine that. Yeah.
3: So if oh, you look line. at like just really look at the film footage of the yeah the interviews outside the house, you realize they're only interviewing gay men. And I, I saw subsequently on in Tom Wolf's film. I saw my friend Orlando that, that that usually they show a little of Lex and a little of this other guy who's very very fay and they that's all that and Tom Wolf showed more so I saw more people I knew mm. and all dead I had seen Gobi and Tobaldi the previous season do it with Corelli, who replaced Barry Morell. That was a night. When oh they... dear, what a pity! Yeah, the thing comes out you can imagine the audience. But
0: that the substitute would be Corelli.
3: Yeah, it oh was wild. And hey, he was a good singer. It was. It yes, was, he was sad. The, the place went crazy. But it was to Bali, and she was wonderful in her way. And the Fisigarte was particularly beautiful that night. But the following year. Gobi, Callas, Cordelli. One memorable thing on the line was that Franco and Loretta worked the line. What? Yes. They came with a coffee cart of hot coffee and donuts and worked. <sighs> this was what Loretta was like. Bless her. Because she used to come to the shows. I, I like Loretta, but she was dr- driven. So Corelli came with their little dog, Romeo. And For
0: anyone who doesn't know, this is Mrs. Corelli. Mrs. Corelli. I think her name was
3: Loretta L- Di Lelio, right? Before, originally, when she was, when she was originally, a Originally, when she was briefly a singer, yes. What she would do as she approached you on the line was, she'd say, are you here for Carlos or Corelli? <laughs> and you had the feeling that if you said Carlos, the dog would bite you or, you know, you wouldn't get the coffee and donuts for sure. <laughs> And so slowly they worked their way up the line, and my panic intensified as it got closer and closer. I thought, Jesus Christ, what am I going to say? Because the truth is, I love Franco, but I was not a big Franco fan at that time. I was a big Bergonzi fan. It was more elegant for me. Mm -hmm. The way I was a big Margot Fontaine fan when they used to dance at the Met rather than a -A Nureyev fan because I felt he was rather ostentatious. A lot of that reversed later, as I came to appreciate what they were about.
0: Ostentation. Yes, exactly. <laughs>
3: yeah. Relish ostentation. Yes, yes. I mean, where, where did Vera come from? She had to come from somewhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, there had to be the very toss, but then there had to be the flamboyance.
2: Exactly.
3: When they got to me, finally she said, yeah for for Gala And I said, Gobi. And I got the coffee, but not the donut. <laughs> and the dog didn't bite me. At the, at the performance, they had people in off the street in street clothes with placards that said Bravo Franco during the curtain calls. They paid, got clack to walk in only at the curtain calls when you could get into the Met after the show was over. It was <laughs> wild. She was quite a character. Bless her. My mother was at a Pioneer Women meeting, some Jewish lady organization, when this woman said, I have a ticket for Tosca with callus. I don't like callus. Richard Tucker's in it. Does anyone want it? So my mother bought it. The first was a gala, you know, benefit. First okay. one was, was Corelli Gobi on a Sunday, special Sunday performance. So then the one who
0: didn't like Alice, but it's Richard
3: Tucker. It's Richard it Tucker. <laughs> my mother bought it. It was a family circle seat. She had two. So I took my friend Robert Mispin with me because he had introduced me to opera. So I saw them both. I also went to the airport. Uh, we wanted to make sure she was here because we were afraid she'd cancel. So we all got on a bus and went to what had been Idlewild Airport. I think by then it might have just been JFK. And we waited. And then we were up on this raised area, and there was like an overhang blocking us. And all we could see was the bottom of a mink coat and kind of fat ankles. And we knew it was Maria arriving, and we all Cankles, started to scream. Right.
0: Did she have the dogs with her? Do you remember? Were they walking along? I don't or? think she had the dogs. Okay.
3: But I do remember they all ran downstairs where she was going to get out. And Francis Robinson was there to greet her for the Met and put her in the limo and go with her. And I remember we were all screaming and waving things. I was hiding because my parents thought I was at Cooper doing an art project. So I hid behind people. And then I remember her saying, hello, Frances, and getting into the limousine. It was like, well, here I am. And it, it kind of fatalistic sound to it. But they were amazing performances. Vocally, the first act was really pretty. Second act was rocky but thrilling beyond description. Third act, I don't remember because you couldn't survive the second act because of what went on with... With her and Gopi, it's like looking through a keyhole at real events that had later become an opera.
0: Pardon me for jumping in again. I think you need to hear one more time that last sentence that Ira just said. It seems to me to summarize the magic of great performance.
3: You couldn't survive the second act because of what went on with with her and Gopi. It's like looking through a keyhole at real yes. events that had later become
4: ma speranza la regina farebbe
3: Tucker detracted from the second one only because he was not glamorous in that way. But in terms of her vocal vocalization, was maybe a little better at the first, mostly the same. The voice had become smaller, much smaller than I heard John Ardoin told me at that one. Oh, you should have heard the Lucia in 56. The voice was twice as big. There were some notes that were still big around it, fat, nice, juicy A-flats and A's. Mm-hmm. And then above that, it flapped. Was wobbling very badly. Someone took their little reel to reel and and recorded. Right, you can I think find it on YouTube. Oh, you can find the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It circulated widely very quickly. Of course, I taped the second from the family circle standing room. The second act in the second one, the, all her parts, and the, one of my little reels. But it was very. It was far your away. own Mapleson cylinders. Yeah, it really sort of, is. Yes. <laughs> slightly better, but not much. But the the first one you can hear. It was so. It was light and pretty in the first act. But the big stuff was too pressurized, you know, for her at that that point. Yeah, yeah. But it was great. Then Scotto came the next season, and her debut, and after that, was for me, it changed my whole aesthetic. I think reason it kind of started to, Mm -hmm. and Scotto, the first utterances in Butterfly... I didn't even know what I was hearing. I'd never heard vowels that open and bright. I'd never heard text penetrate in that way. In the entrance. Then the whole performance she was seemingly gigantic, vocal and I thought, she's not she's gonna cancel Lucia. She can't do Lucia after this butterfly sung like Tolkien. So she
0: was scheduled to do sort of Lucia uh, and uh, Adina
3: That's right, with Bergonzi, I think, was it? Well Rund? later it was Bergonzi, okay. yeah. Yeah, it was, was this it? was sixty
2: five. Oh, 65, right, the and the
3: broadcast then, yeah. of butterfly was January first, sixty six. Right. Her debut was October 13, sixty five. I think she injured herself in the fall of one Lucia and canceled one Adina. That was the scuttlebutt, was it? she'd hurt her neck or something. I saw the butterfly four or five times, Lucia twice, and the one Adina that she did. And I think it was George Shirley. But 66 was Alexander. He was wonderful. She.
0: Let's was... just say a word about him, because I really think he's a nearly forgotten and really was, even at the time he was undervalued he was that you know he was the, bad sort bad. of one of the house tenors but my god these comments that i put on podcast episode were in relation to shirley verrett's norma there's oh. that horrible recording from boston really bad quality but a stunning performance and he matches her Absolutely. Oh, it was spectacular. He was spectacular. There were roles. And he do. sang so many poliones. He's on the first Sutherland recording. Yes.
3: He sang it with Sills. He sang it with uh, Rita with Hunter when, when Corelli pulled out of the Met. Oh, and, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. He was great. The butterfly is fantastic. I love Geda, but I preferred Alexander Zelvino at the Met. Yeah. I loved his Faust. I loved his Hoffmann. The voice was robust and beautiful. Yes, he also sang Walter in Meistersinger. It was very even, the top was spectacular. I thought he was a terrific, terrific singer. Butterfly, a friend of mine, tape. They stayed home and taped it so that we'd have a. We were not instant fanatics. We went to Englewood, New Jersey, and saw her first New York recital.
0: Did Wosman play for her in that?
3: No. Uh, he, that I know one, he played later, some later. Later, no, it was Alberto uh, Mazziello played
0: for her. Oh my God! At the Knabe. <laughs>
3: at the Canape, they
0: used to always say
3: it was. Oh my it was, God! It was quite something. We were screaming our heads up. Bob Lombardo was there her manager and we were all just screaming and this woman this kind of Englewood New Jersey matron came up to us and said I don't understand because Joan Sutherland sang a recital here last year. Nobody screamed like that. What's going on? You know, it was hard to explain. <laughs> oh, wonderful. I mean, the recital was, you know, Odell Mayer, Joel to start with something kind of recital-esque and then go directly into the big Capoletti, Shana, Traviata, Shana, Sonambula, <gasps> Shana, you know, it was Renata. It's like the recital she did at In, uh, the Bolshoi. The Moscow one. Which yeah. is so amazing. It was uh, very similar to that. Anyway, I went to the opera lot and focused on Renata. I missed a a lot of great shows, I'm sure, because I was so opinionated. Were <laughs> so, you a Cabaye fan or not? I was a Cabaye fan. I wouldn't say a Caballet fan with a grain of salt. I was a Cabaye fan, but I quickly came to accept what I knew she was about. So yes. I would try not to get outraged when she'd walk through something because I saw the you know the Crazy Boys of the Devereaux, the things that she did at Carnegie Hall that were concert operas right. that put her on the map. You saw those. I saw those, mm-hmm. and I did get in the second. I went to Devereaux twice. I went to both performances. The second one, there were so many floats that I got tired of them, and I began to realize that she was predictable. The first staged one was disdemonite that Met with Kobe and McCracken, and she kind of walked through it that way. That Montserrat could. I did see a very colorful Don Carlo in Verona a couple of years after that, my first trip to Europe. And uh, she had phlebitis and two canes at that point. Oh, my God. And in Non Piangere mia Campagna, she rotated, holding the high A pianissimo to the whole Verona arena on her two canes. So I went more to her recitals in Europe. The late 60s, 70s, I went to a lot of Renata and Leoni. But I was very opinionated. I, I missed a certain amount of Sutherland because I had become disenchanted with the less interpretive and mushier kind of sound. Not to take us too far afield, but were you a Tibaldi? fan? I was a Dubaldi fan. It's hard to define what I was with Dubaldi. Yeah. If she smiled, you loved her. But the high notes were almost all flat. And the voice was a thing of the past, really, by the time I started to hear her. yes. So I had very mixed feelings. About it. And so, since I was such a Scotto fan, my Renata, I would always say, was, you know, little Renata. Yes. Was my Renata. And I,
0: Renatina. Exactly.
3: <laughs> Just 10 minutes That's ago. As opposed to she, Renatone. Yeah, really was. <laughs> But it was huge. God, Tibaldi's voice was enormous. And she was so charismatic, you couldn't not love her. But I heard other people comment, people who were going at a similar
0: rate that you were, that Cospin had the biggest middle voice that they had ever experienced. was the biggest,
3: there. richest, most beautiful middle voice I ever heard in my life. And the Siglinde, for me, was all about that. And it was interesting for me, not being a tone person... To actually fall in love with a voice, as opposed to a Leone or a Scotto or Olivero kind of sound, or callas. To fall in love with the opulence. Not that she wasn't an artist, but it was about the sound. And And an actor, too. And an actor. But it was a
0: slightly different focus in that there was vocal beauty there that some of these other
3: really compelling singers didn't have. have. And I couldn't believe the way I was responding to a sound, uh, but I was.
0: for a very short break, my friends. Thank you for all of you who are listening in today. I'm on a major push to gain listeners and subscribers for the podcast. So if you are listening for the first time and you really like this, please go to any of the usual podcast platforms, subscribe, rate, review, you know the shtick. You can also find the show notes page to every episode at the dedicated website for the podcast, which is countermelodypodcast.com. That's countermelodypodcast, one word, dot com. And for those of you who would like to support the podcast financially with a monthly donation of any amount, please go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash counter melody. Once you've subscribed at any level, you will be able to access bonus material, which I am rapidly putting together. My first bonus post for subscribers will be a follow-up to the episode I did on Iliana Kotrubash a few weeks ago, and I do think I'm going to also do a bonus episode that includes selections from all of the singers that Ira and I have been talking about in this interview. Before we go back to the interview, I'm going to offer you excerpts of two clips that Ira offered me from his pre-Vera performing life. When they saw the star,
2: they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, lululule, they saw the with Mary, his father, and they fell down and worshipped him. Lula,
0: lula, 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 lula. The first is a solo from the first Al Carmines show that he did. It was called Christmas Wrappings. He first appeared in the show in 1970, and this recording was made in 1979. Here's what he writes to me. It's a sort of hybrid, a show voice in the beginning that morphs into an operatic sound at the end.
2: Then they offered him gifts, lululee. Gold, and mark, and frankincense, lululee.
4: When they saw the star,
2: lululee.
4: They rejoiced rejoiced, in lululee. lululee. And going into the house, lululee. They saw the joy.
0: The second clip that I'm going to offer is a very short trimming down of a larger number that he provided me with. It's from a cabaret review that he was in in 1979 called I've Got This Song, and it's by the composer pianist Richard Burke, who also subsequently served as the first music director of La Gran Chena. We hear two voices here one is Julie Kernitz, who Ira refers to as a brilliant cabaret artist and Richard's main cabaret muse. Working with Richard was a primary performance opportunity for Ira between 1977 and 1982. He says, It might be interesting to take a clip of the legitimate tenor voice from this piece. It seems to surprise people who only know Vera. It's quite wonderful. It's a very funny parody. I wish I could give you the whole... Number. Enough.
4: What about this letter?
2: What a letter! So that I can explain you huge better. fra regione emeria in barca di toro it has a damn just now la incontroremo e avete fino a sastri
4: i vostri quando fiosò GORMY oh.
0: And now back to the interview. Ira first tells us about his association with Al Carmines and his musicals, and then goes on to tell us about the story of how Granchena came to be.
3: I had a friend who was chief salesman at Discophile on 8th Street. Uh, I go to Discophile to hang out because I didn't have much of a budget for records, and Jeffrey we would commune about opera and we became very close. By that time, I had sort of my first boyfriend and he and I and Jeffrey were sort of a trio for a while. And then he introduced me to Al Carmine's who became his boyfriend. So I began to actually sing in public as a sort of Tenor, and Al wrote all these roles for me. Had you done any vocal study
0: at that point? Yes. Or it was
3: just... Before then, I studied with two different teachers. Very unfortunate. They both taught the Douglas Stanley method. Oh, you know the about st- that? Oh,
0: my God.
3: I've completely forgotten about this. Horrifying. The Stanley steamers. Oh, yeah, it was, well, it, they had these implements. They would shove your tongue down your throat to lower your oh, larynx. Oh, those. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah, so it was kind of, you ended up, everything was down and back. And, and and Vibrato will come, he said, after about seven years. <laughs> God. Oh, it was a nightmare. But I didn't oh, know anything. So right. I studied that, then he died of alcoholism. Uh, he was so a, it wasn't Stanley himself that you studied, No, it was with a protege. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he was a bass, so for him this thing kinda worked. Yeah. And then I went to another guy who eventually moved to Germany to sing operetta. He was softcore Stanley. He had studied with John Mace, who was another Stanley teacher, Mace. <laughs> yeah, I really had Mace, so aptly named. But, yes, but um, <laughs> he allowed me to sing vowels and open vowels. And so, but the problem with Dwayne was that all the vowels were open all the way up. There was no turn, there was no passaggio, no modification of oh anything. So I was basically screaming, which Al really liked because he liked a big sound for excitement and he would write at the top of your range frequently for excitement. He was a great melodist, a wonderful composer. And he was writing specifically for and he you. He was in writing fact. specifically for me during that tenure with carmines when i started seeing in public and i was getting good reviews for the hollering well i was with Al a lot from 70 75 continued through 79 but i turned down a number of the shows toward the end but in 73 one of and the were these
0: sh- things being done at judson church they were done or- at judson
3: church okay. and then if we had a big hit one moved to circle in the square one moved to arena stage in washington one moved to an off-broadway theater that was then called Truck and Warehouse Theater. It's now, I think, Musical Theater Work, or something on East 4th Street uh, across from La Mama. So sometimes I got into Actors' Equity that way, and they provided income and unemployment after they closed. And they were going to do a Broadway production of Al's Snow White Show. It was an opera about Snow White. I was the mirror, the Queen's Mirror, and I turned into the Prince at the end, and blah, blah, blah. At that point, the producer, Bruce Mailman, said, You all have to go to real voice teachers now. We're going to Broadway and you have a lot of rough edges that it flies and juts in Judson, but you have to go to real voice teachers. So the one voice teacher I really knew about was Randy Michelson. He had a reputation among my friends as a Belcanto person. He knew everyone, worked with everyone. Uh, he had done the Siege of Corinth edition that was gonna be Scotto, but she got pregnant, provided Sills La Scala debut, and then the Met did it for Sills' debut later. By which right. time I was already studying with him. So in 73, I started to study Garcia Belcanto technique with Randy. Wow. But as a tenor, I learned all about vowels. And with first teacher, it was kind of, oh, you know, and the oh second God. teacher was, ah. Really, I said, i so embarrassed to go to him because he was working with Scotto. He did the ornaments for Caballé's Rarities albums. Oh, yes. And I said, I have no voice when I arrived, but I need to study and, and I know about your work. And a friend of mine had studied with him, yet I'd given my friend a voice lesson. He said, you need to go to Randy. So I went to Randy and he said, no, no, you have quite a voice. You just have absolutely no idea how to use it. So he taught me and he used to play Moresky 78s. Oh and my so God. He, we'd take a break. He'd smoke. And the lessons were all with harpsichord because he was also a Baroque expert. He taught me the foundation of, of what I teach. Not what I did as Vera should have did later as Vera, but in the beginning. I, uh, for instance, I teach a very slender upper register. Spreading is a crime against the vocal art. But I spread as Vera to get the, you know, to get high Bs, Cs, and Ds out. And I look at the videos now and I think, you stupid idiot. Anyway, I'd never studied with Randy as a soprano. I studied with him as a tenor. And Randy told me not to sing soprano anymore because it would decimate my tenor voice. So I obeyed him. And one of the reasons Granchena started so late, I was 35 when it started, was that I was an obedient student and I stayed away from that stuff. But mean, you had been
0: dabbling in
3: it oh, before that. Oh, starting more I than dabbling. My friends and I used to get together at Norman Fisher, was John Arduin's partner. We'd get together at Norman's Loft because he was a designer. And we would sing a cappella. I'd sing Bel I, I could sing the Bolero from Vespi with a full voiced Heidi Natural. <laughs> I had all of that when I was 21, 22, 23, and I wish I had done something. Ah,
0: youth. Yeah, it was all about youth.
3: I'm not going to interrupt for more than a
0: few seconds to tell you, but I also found my high voice singing along with my Sutherland records. Yeah. I would sing it was the second because I was you know, just a few years behind you. But I would sing along with the second Sutherland Mad scene. I'd sing it over and over and over. Da 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 da, da And yeah. full voice. I full mean voice it was ear-splitting. out. Growing up in this family vault, I mean they just didn't know what to do
3: with me. They did not know what well, to me do too. with Me too. My parents who were New York liberal Jews, but their next-door neighbor, Gert Zuckerman, outed me as a soprano, because my parents were out in the evening. First thing I do is run down to the basement and sing. They had this metal umbrella stand, and I would put the mic from the Norelco in the metal to get echo. Oh,
0: my God! <laughs> Ira! Oh, my
3: God! And then I would sing with... Uh, Jones, art Joan's from down Very Low, and then sing all of that stuff. I didn't know the words because it didn't come with a libretto, so I would just sort of make up words and just do all these... High notes. It was The sort of music, primitive. your own version of music minus one. It was with also, an umbrella yes, stand for with for With an, an umbrella stand and, <laughs> and no words. <laughs> and she, Gert, told your parents. Yeah, I'm hearing this. Like, the music is very loud when you're out. I don't think she could fathom that it was me. But my parents, I think, maybe figured it out. But they didn't want to know. Anyway, so I did study. And Randy was great. And I went to Juilliard non-matriculated courses at Hunter oh, and Juilliard to okay. catch up musically. Yes, Cause I had an art degree, a uh, visual arts degree from Cooper Union. I didn't have a music degree. And then fast forward, I left Al's shows. He also had an aneurysm and he was composing a lot less. It was very sad. But I left those shows and I kicked around for a while and did cabaret as a tenor. And I, But in the shows, I would parody Renata and I would also parody a jazz singer called Betty Changes who was Betty Carter kind of And Sarah Vaughn with scat singing. Ooh. Someday I'll have to post that. Oh my God, you have
0: documentation.
3: One video of... So the jazz singer's persona was Betty
4: Changes? Betty Changes.
3: And she was hilarious. She would scat sing until she couldn't stop and she had to be physically contained by the pianist. (laughs) And she had said the her jazz club on fire. I mean, she had a whole bio. I had one video of my last cabaret shows in 82, because in those days it was all cassettes, you know, you wanted to hear your show. And by then I was just starting Grand Chena, so I sang Vici Tartino. So I began to realize, but didn't know what to do with it, that the female characters, and I also did a Pavarotti plugging his autobiography and stuff on a talk show. Mine was called Tenor Dearest. And, you know, the parody became the thrust. And then... There was a fateful night when a guy called Mario Villanueva came to the show. He was a fan, and he came with probably Richard Hanneman, who was uh, someone I met on the collis line years and years before. And in 1980, Mario came to the show, and he gave me an invitation. said, if you'd like to come to this, it was a soiree of two divas, Celestina de la Gluck, and another diva, Magda, I don't remember what, was Mario and his cousin from the Dominican Republic who were doing a dueling diva kind of recital at West Beth, this artist's apartment thing in the West Village. So I went. I left that thing levitating because I actually saw two people doing what we all did for fun in front of an audience, eating it up, and I so wanted to do it, and I thought, I, I really want to do this. And then Mario called me, he said, Eduardo's going back, he was studying medicine, he's going back to the Dominican Republic, would you like to get together and form something where we sing as two divas? He had a very spinny, a very beautiful vibrato, very limited in range, falsetto, he was beautiful to look at. So I said, yeah, I don't know what. My my falsetto's, you know, I've been using it in cabaret, but I haven't really, you know, I'm not supposed to. So I had to resurrect the range, which was no longer anything like what it was. At first, it only went to an A, then I cranked it up to a D flat, and then I was trying to decide on a name and what to do, and I didn't want to get in drag. It was a whole thing until I finally thought the first musical director of Granchena was Richard Burke, who was the music director of my cabaret show. And was a, he was a genius. And Richard just sort of was into doing it. I said, yeah, why don't we do this? Mario was an amateur in the best sense of the word. He was not a professional performer. He was a translator, Spanish translator, oh, right. at the UN. But he sang and he was a diva worshiper. So we got together. He named the company. I thought it was too long and uh, difficult for people. But I... Was very and he cool. came up with it, La, La Granchena, Granchena, in other words. Yeah, and I had this one recording of Margaret Tynes doing the Granchena di Sonambulismo for Macbeth.
0: Okay, I'm jumping in yet again to tell you that at the mention of the name Margaret Tynes, I went off on this enormous tangent because... She's a fascinating singer, and I'm hoping to do an episode on her in the very near future. She's 102 years old, almost as old as Gabriella Tonozitti-Casseruola and Emily Postmortem. Extraordinary. The conversation went very smoothly over a wide range of topics, including Shirley Verrett, Norma, Azucena, the role of Lady Macbeth, sung by Margaret Tynes and by Renata Scotto. Renata Scotto's La Gioconda from San Francisco, her feud with Luciano Pavarotti, their final performances together in Ballo in Maschera in Chicago. It was really fabulous, but it really went off track, and so I'm just going to leave it off of this episode. Maybe I'll offer it at some other point. But I did want to get us back on track with the history of La Gran Chena.
3: Mario and I started, we rented the Orpheum Theater on Second Avenue. Mario was fantastic. He got a costume designer for free, a lighting designer for free. And we auditioned some people, and I auditioned Keith Jarosco. He was the first one, and he sang Die Stuart de and "Di Provenza El Mar. I heard it, and I thought, oh my God, this is phenomenal. We did these shows at the Orpheum, and the shows were extended. We were supposed to do four shows, and it was going to be a benefit for, maybe it was GMHA then, before the crisis. Mm-hmm. It turned into, I think, 12 shows. There was a show playing at the Orpheum called Key Exchange. That was a play that ended at 9.40. So we did 11 o'clock shows after Key Exchange on Friday nights, and people would come down you know, from the Met and City Opera with a paper bag over their head and watch the shows. Uh, Stefan Zucker brought Bianca Berini, who became... My biggest fan ever. She didn't ever laugh. She was hypnotized. It was very strange. We got a review in the Houston Post from S- Albright, William Albright. I mean, it was it was an amazing kind of thing. And it was all, our first performance was reviewed by Bernard Holland in the Times. And he didn't get it at all, but he really liked it. I did all these mailings to Ovation Magazine and the Times and stuff because I was quasi known from the, the comment shows. I yes. guess I got people to come. I don't know. Anyway, we did the shows. Upshot was Mario pulled out after the initial season. He could not really take the pressure of professional performing because he'd never done it. Yes. And I felt very bad about that because he was so instrumental in getting us everything. Yes. We paid for the theater ourselves. I mean, we self-produced totally, but he got us people and we paid bupkis to the performers But they were devoted to the project, and Mario would really pep-steam them into, what would he say, this project is blessed, is what he would say. And it was amazing. There was no acrimony when he left. It just was like, I can't do this. And part of what happened was there was kind of a difference in the level of our performing skills, because I had a lot more experience. He was wonderful, and Bernard Holland preferred him. But I could sing in Costa Regia. His top kind of ended at a G or an A flat on a lucky night. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what he could do was more limited, and the audience would go crazy after the Regia, And I knew how to time laughs and stuff because I just had a background in that.
0: California experience you'd had, I'm sure, and really,
3: really played into Well, me. I finally got to use it, because yes. when I was a tenor, it was like... I remember Al Carmine told my friend Jeffrey I wasn't supposed to know this, but Jeffrey had an evil side, so he told me that Al said one side, like this tenor was horrifying, because I was a prima donna, sort of trapped in this tenor persona, singing like I was a prima donna with the wrong voice. It was true. Then I met Philine because when Mario left, we needed a mezzo to balance the thing... That was easy. She sang una voce poco va in this room, and that was sad.
0: We're speaking here of the great Filine Wannell, a.k.a. Philip Koch, who was the seconda donna in La Gran Cena and, by any standards, a stunning mezzo-soprano.
3: Then we became sort of the two divas and in. I Invented Gabriella. because what Keith could sound like. And, and her
0: name, he came up with the name.
3: Yes.
1: Or, uh, I
2: am old, I am ugly, I am
1: decrepit, but I am
2: still Gabriella Tuna Noodle Casserole.
1: Tuna Tuna Casserole.
3: And then there was Bruce, who knew nothing about opera whatsoever, and I had to tell him, you're going to have to hold there. If you say cabaye means to cancel... You're gonna have to hold for a laugh. Uh, so I would write the scripts, and then we'd go through them in a.
0: You and Bruce were friends anyway. We right? were friends
3: anyway. We had actually been a couple years and years before. Oh, okay. And we were friends at the run in the Orpheum. Bruce was an off-stage announcer over a speaker, like what I do at the Met on the radio, giving the plots and kind of this very dry monologue about Madame Vera and Celestina. It was very funny in a very dry way, and the ridiculous opera plots would be played up the ridiculousness of them. It was all a radio broadcast. And then we would perform the scenes. And Luis, our first tenor, we were going to play Provincetown and it never happened. But Luis was so brilliant. He said, you should have an onstage drag hostess for the shows in Provincetown because it's going to be more like a cabaret. Beverly had just retired. And so that's how Sylvia Bills happened. And I thought, well, there's no one... Who came up with the name Sylvia Bills? I did. Oh, you did. But Bruce had this timing. No one had timing like Bruce, so... Oh my god. It was amazing. Then it slowly
2: dawns on Tosca that what he wants is her body. She then sings the famous aria Visi d'arte, Visi d'amore, or I live for art, I live for love, why is this happening to me? (laughs) Which is exactly what I said to myself the first time I appeared on The Muppet Show. (laughs)
3: So I said, you have to do this. Remember in the fanchula that he'd hold the microphone up every time the door opened. you go. (laughs) (laughs) And he would add some of the best lines ever. My favorite was when he would say, "Um, I'm not going to sing tonight, not even if you shout. And then two people would say something or somebody would go like this. You know, I'm not going to sing tonight, even if you stamp your feet and shout Sylvia. So then no one would respond. And he'd say, thank you both. Or if they hissed a joke, he'd say, is something wrong with heat in here? No, and do and you remember are... when
0: we performed at the Theater des Westens, all the jokes had to be reframed to be about Anneliese Rothenberger? Yes. You remember this? Yes. Because nobody knew who Beverly Sills oh, was. It... She wasn't a cultural no, phenomenon they, they, in Germany. They had no idea. But Anneliese Rothenberger, absolutely. I mean, if you've ever seen clips of her doing a, a watercolor painting with Lily Palmer, have you seen that one? It's a scream. Yeah.
3: And heute ist sie mein
0: Gast,
4: Lily Palmer.
3: I can't believe we actually went and did that in English, first of all. Nobody got anything at that point. And yet, I mean, we got great reviews. They loved it. They but did. nobody got any of the jokes. Later, we went to Germany in German.
0: Who did the narration? Then? A guy. Well, Bruce was
3: already gone by then, right? Yeah, Bruce yeah. was gone. And Joe Simmons did it in Spanish in Barcelona. And who was
0: his persona?
3: And it was Sylvie Bill. Oh, he did. We oh, so Sylvie he Bild. took over Sylvie Bill. And, and another guy did it in Spanish later. This guy, John Moriello, did it in German, and I worked with Tim, can't remember his name, very cute guy from Deutsche's House, on the jokes, because jokes don't translate. So I had to rewrite all the jokes. Well, and also, of course, Germans have no sense of humor. They have That's no the other sense other of humor, <laughs> and they don't understand irony.
0: So, no, having lived in Berlin now for almost nine years, no. No, they don't, don't get it. No, they don't. And that's Berlin. When you went back to Germany, were those shows also at the Desfestens? We went or? back in
3: 90 to the Festens, but you were there. You yes, I Amaris. was there for that. We did two and, seasons. And yeah. then we didn't go back to Berlin. We went to Frankfurt several times, Heidelberg well, several did, times.
0: Well, I did... I think the, when I was when I did two European tours. Yeah, you, you did Frankfurt. I did one well. Frankfurt, yes. right? because that
3: was the same year as the second Berlin. Well, the first Berlin was 89, the second Berlin was 90, I think. Right, Frankfurt. it was one right before the wall came down yeah. and one right after. Exactly. Oh, so, so Frankfurt was the second, second year. Second one. Okay. And then we went back the next year. Um, oh, God, it was terrifying. We were there with the Christmas, New Year's season. We were the entertainment <laughs> at that same soap factory theater. I can't remember what it was called. Tour. Frankfurt, and the set, they were throwing... That's where the show was? In, yeah. in I'm yeah. drawing the blank. With some small, not that small, but pretty small, mm-hmm. like the size of the Kennedy Center one. More progressive theater, kind of like the Bloomsbury was in London. Yes, you know, yes, that, exactly. that kind of thing. yes but they were throwing explosives down from the roofs on New Year's Eve and stuff. And I mean, and It's terrifying. It's horrible. The Grand Chena thing, then it, it you know, yeah. got management. It kind of took off. It never made a lot of money. We were supposed to go to Japan in 99. I think that would have made a lot of money. Mm, and yes. then the guy who was um, going to produce it, we met him in Hanover, and he pulled out because he saw the show in Hanover and decided no one would get the Tosca, and that was our big famous scene. The Japanese wouldn't get it. So I was ready to kind of adapt the show because by then I had Kyle was in the company of Black mm-hmm. Soprano mm-hmm. and I was going to do a Kathy Cavatina Turner. Cavatina Turner. I was going to do a Kathy Battle thing because she was a big star in Japan. I would have adapted the show but anyway that that never happened but it was a fantastic voyage. It finished at the Liceo in 2002 with the full company went on to 2009 with the solo recitals and in a strange way Getting an address and singing soprano led to everything else that happened to me with legitimate opera world and that's yes. the strangest part. That I would be on the radio from the Metropolitan Opera being you no know, Milton Cross. And that even that came from Vera because I went on WNYC with Margaret Chuntwaite, who was a classical record spinner. She interviewed Madame Vera as a fundraiser for public radio. She said, Oh, let's take five interviews where I ask you a question. As Vera, you you never answer it because Vera goes off. And then, so I have to have you back. So that turned into 60 of these little conversations every Sunday on her show over two years, 97, 98, 99. And we even put out a two CD set of it at one point. Hope you
2: me my English. She is mink and lacquer, Madame Vera veragalupe Borges. Hello, my dear. Welcome, dear. Thank you. Madame, the holiday season's upon us, and that means lots of parties and family gatherings and that one thing everyone will have lots and lots of. Yes! What? Well, it begins with an F. Oh, uh, fights, of course. You two, we always had our biggest and best fights at family <laughs> gatherings. No, 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 madame, not fights. Another F word. Oh, Margaret, not the F word. <laughs> you mean maybe lots of f- 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 fooling around, huh? Like the holiday is a honeymoon? No. Not a honeymoon. You mean they're not even married? No, 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 not, not that F word. A foreskin. The holiday is maybe a brisk. <laughs> oh. oh. My dear, don't make me watch or I will become another F word, faint. <laughs> no, no. Not foreskin. Why are you making me say foreskin on the radio? I'm not making you say anything. You brought the whole thing up. Ah, falsetto, a big F word in my profession. No, madame. Fly paper, forensic medicine, frog's (laughs) legs. Fix it then. No, 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 madame. It's food. What's food? The F word. Ha. For some people's maybe, (laughs) they are so phobic, another F word, about another F word, (laughs) fat. Or is that a PH word? No, no, fat is definitely an F word. Yeah, of course, in our house, the family gatherings were very big because the family, another F word, (laughs) if ever there was one, was so big. I was, you know, one of 32 children. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was amazing to me that my mother could have so many children, especially since she was a widow.
3: When Margaret became the announcer on the Met broadcast when Peter Allen retired, they were auditioning co hosts. Peter Gelb took over the Met, he wanted a co host. Beverly was a co host when we Joyce De Donato. But they couldn't keep having stars because they needed someone who'd be all the time. Yeah. So they called in a number of people, including me, I had no idea I was auditioning for anything. And they, they called me on the phone. I was in New Jersey directing up with Sharon Sweet. They called and they said, Would you um be interested in coming in and doing a co hosting thing with Margaret on the radio Saturday. I said, What's the opera? As you, name? not as as, as me. Vera. Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. they said, Although we did a few on serious radio with Margaret and Vera uh-huh. later. Uh-huh. But they said, uh, Simo Bocanegra. And I, I thought, Well, okay, I kind of know that yeah. opera. So I went home, I made some notes. I went in, I can't believe, because we work so hard on it now, I can't believe this was thrown together. I went in on a Wednesday, the broadcast was Saturday. I went on the air, I talked about Boccanegra, and at the end of that broadcast, they said, we're doing Egyptische Helena, and we don't know anyone who can come in and do that. And I said, oh, I know that opera. I just wrote liner notes for Doro about that opera. They said, could you come in and do that one? So I came in and I did that one. Was it the Leonie? Yes, it was the Leonie. Mm -hmm. At the end of that broadcast, you know, there's the omniscient. Yes, the allwissende Zemusha. Yeah, exactly. So (laughs) Margaret said at the end of the thing, she said, oh, did you enjoy this, you know, on the air? And I said, oh, I'm as happy as an omniscient clam, is what I said. So Peter Gelb heard that and thought it was very funny. So I didn't know that that kind of sealed the job for me. I got called in again to do Yenufa and then Turandot. And then I got called in and I said, how many do you want next season? And they said all of them. So that began, and that was because of doing Vera on a fundraiser on the radio, the Levine thing directing for Jim, because he became a mega Gran Chena fan. And then he called me and he said, when he went to Tanglewood, and they had a theater, and he said, I want to put on operas, and I hear you're directing now. What would you like to direct? So I said, Così, because I had done what I thought was a really good production of that in New Zealand. It was an opera I was never into, you know. It, was not, it wasn't like Augusto Travella never sang Cosy. <laughs> so I didn't care, you know. Oh, Adami Corradetti, never sang, you yes, know Cavazzi, yes, yes. Petrella, Olivero, You know, I was forced to do it in New Zealand. That's what they wanted, and then I kind of fell in love with it and the characters, and you could update it easily without offending the piece. And so he said, "Oh, that's just what I wanted to do." So we did that. Then we did Giovanni, then Ariadne, and he had to cancel Ariadne for back surgery. So I got von Dohnani, conducted that one. I remember my my husband did uh, the Haushofmeister in that non-singing role. Is that and where you met? or No, we met through, oh God, a Korean-American soprano who was a student of mine. I had met in Italy in a vocal arts program in 97, went to Northwestern with Hans, where he went for his postgraduate work uh. after the Amsterdam Conservatory. This student of mine said, I have this friend. He is perfect for you. He lives in Amsterdam and he's also kind of big. And I know you like slim guys and he's in Amsterdam and you don't like Amsterdam, but He's really perfect for you. Hernd. All I mean, these matchmaking friends, I can't. It's it's outrageous. So it's usually I, a disaster. No, it's, it's right. a Disaster. And, and expect,
0: the, it's all of the signs were that this was yet another.
3: Yeah. Oh, I thought this is ridiculous. Yeah. And she said, "But you have to email him." Yes. And I said, "No. If he wants to, he can email me." Also, by that time, I was sixty, and I thought this is not going to happen. And he was thirty-eight or maybe even 37 at that point. But I wrote to him, and at that point, he was running his family's ice cream business because he had lost his hearing and stopped singing, his baritone. And so he's deaf, but he's a great deaf baritone. He has digital hearing aids, and his intonation is perfection. Long story short, we were writing and writing and writing. Jennifer invites him to New York for Thanksgiving and then goes to Paris with her husband and leaves him in my care. And it really worked. And so that was that. And then three years later, we got married. He has a foundation that he's forming in Holland, the Fidelio Foundation for Hearing Impairment and Musicians. My joy is on the
0: floor. This is really amazing. It's stunning. Wow. And he still sings.
3: And he still sings. Clearly, you were telling me. He went back to singing. That's been wonderful because without Hans, I mean, the second life in Amsterdam with the teaching and the friends we have there. It's been great. He did a minach Brahms on a Ooh. Dutch national TV to plug the foundation when he started. But it's a great, just great
4: cause. <laughs>
0: I just have to tell you guys that that is Exhibit A in the Small World category. The pianist on that recording is my dear friend Peter Nielsen, who's a former roommate of mine from when we were both students of John Wussman at the University of Illinois in Urbana. So, wow. And of course, he's a stunning musician, as is Hans.
3: He's a fantastic singer, and he got some work and he got into the Dutch opera chorus as a freelancer. He did a Torres Leporello and a lot of recitals. He's a great teacher. I sent him to Randy. He studied Garcia with Randy. He sings beautifully. Incredible. Diminuendi. That's the sign of a good singer. Somebody who can do a real mesa di voce. Mes yeah, that's the thing that, and we've really worked on that because I work with him, I coach him. The equipment was always beautiful, but there were things he never learned because Holland yeah, yeah. is not a hotbed of vocal technique. Right,
0: right, right, right.
3: Arthur Levy, who was a really wonderful teacher, and yeah, yeah.
0: still is. I worked with him after I moved back to the U.S. after doing some work in Europe. When I could do that, start from pianissimo, yeah. really bring it to a full mm-hmm. voice fortissimo, and back down, then I knew I finally had yeah. a much Firmer grip on my technique.
3: Oh, absolutely. Randy did the same thing a messa di voce followed by a trill. And it was. Ooh, that's mean. (laughs) And I was a tenor of good trill. I could actually trill. Wow. One of the few. uh, I don't know. Well, Vera always had a marvelous trill. She had a good trill. She had a good
0: trill. This is one thing I want to say about Vera. I was your understudy. You were so consistent every time you would go out there. It was a, for me, primary example of sheer professionalism because every time just, even if you were feeling horrible you gave the same
2: amazing performance but you had i mean no you have to you of had to,
3: you had to and I, but it was so scary and and i know it's so scary for so many people and i could do that thing i used to warm up by doing that thing in the dressing room that was how i could get the chords to finally cooperate because we had to do five seven at Kennedy Center shows in a row of that repertoire. It was tough stuff, and that's why I always felt indisposed permanently. I'm so happy this stuff is all up on YouTube so people can can actually see it. Yeah, Hans has been so helpful with that. I just put an Oconjador up from my very last show, the very last night, 2009. It was really interesting. It was the only time Hans ever saw me live because he didn't come to see us in Amsterdam. And his classmates did. He was in conservatory there, but he didn't come. So he had never seen the show except on video. And he really wanted to see it. And he had a break in, in work in Holland. So he came and helped me and watched and filmed the last three Vera recitals in yes. 2009. He did like a composite video of what we thought were the most vaguely presentable of the three nights. Um, patched it together as one performance. And it was a lovely performance. And the audience went crazy and... All of that stuff. One of the things I loved was also as Vera, I could say anything I wanted about the Met or the opera scene that I could not say as myself. Of course. And it was lovely because it gives you this, playing another character, it just gives you this freedom to be who you really are. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And so he filmed it, but I was entangled with that summer and I was directing Giovanni and, and Hans was covering the commendatory. So we were both there together. I watched The Thing. And Renata had said to me, you will know. Because I said, why don't you still do recitals? You will know. And you do know. I watched that video. People went crazy. I was not happy. And I even felt, the way you feel, the discomfort of producing the noise that used to be easy. It was funny because I was sitting there doing an article on Animafo Proper (laughs) News at the same time that I'm watching this thing. And, And I just thought, that's it. You didn't want to do a Thais. No, I didn't want to Vera not. was not going to get Vera out there and do a, get a Thais. A thais. <laughs> a reputation, Thais. Reput- yes. Yes. And because I loved Anna, and Anna came to the recitals a lot toward the end. Mm. And I thought, you don't want to do that to yourself. And I still get, you know, the why don't you guys revive. People don't understand. It still comes out. I feel good. good. And the noise still comes out at lessons when I demonstrate. yes. But the stamina, and that's what Renata talked to me about, the stamina to do a whole evening, because those recitals particularly were long. Oh, man, yeah. But forget about the evenings we did where I didn't have to sing all the time, but Tosco or Fanchula, that stuff is very damaging. And when I got into the recitals, I sang rep that was much less damaging, and so it went on. But it's still like a two-hour show. That's right. And... It's a stamina issue. You just don't, the muscles will not support. And it's a shame because, as I'm sure you know, your technique is better than ever. You know more about singing than you ever knew, but the muscles won't do it.
0: Ira, thank you so oh, very, pleasure. very much. I'm sure it we was could have a gone on joy. all day.
3: We could have gone on all day. My pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for joining me and Ira for this episode I look forward to bringing you another fascinating episode next week, and I can offer you a little teaser. It's going to be all about Renata Scotto, whom we discussed at length over the course of this episode. I shall bid you all farewell today with an absolutely stunning performance by Vera of Francis Poulin's Les Chemins de l'Amour. It's so beautiful the way that Ira and Vera balance exaggeration and profound depth of feeling along with some absolutely stunning singing. I think I'll actually give Ira the last word here.
3: Playing another character just gives you this freedom to be who you really are.
0: A song in your hearts
4: and happy pride. Bravo. I'm Daniel Gundlach.